Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, if we think it's unfair that so many are condemned to hell, then we declare you unjust. In truth, we see that it's unfair that your son died for our sins, and it's unfair that anyone is saved at all. Yet Jesus willingly did this to save us. Therefore, as we look at the injustice Christ suffered, we thank you that in your grace you have made us your children and ask you to work through the words of our sermon so that we see that it is not only unfair that anyone is saved at all, but also let us rejoice in the very fact that in your grace you have in fact given us salvation. Amen. As we have worked through Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13 and continuing into chapter 53 and looked at that suffering servant of the Lord, we have asked the question during this Lent series, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? And in the first sermon, we saw that he is true God who became true man. Hence, he had what's omniscience, meaning he's all-knowing. And that suffering may seem like a railroad job, but all of that is his using his knowledge to bring you into and keep you into your salvation. In our second sermon, we saw that he suffered inhumane treatment to lift you up and make you a child of God. In the third sermon, we saw that he had no worldly glory. Uh, He had no worldly beauty. That doesn't mean he was ugly either. No majesty to attract us to him so that it would have to be by a miracle that we are attracted attracted to him. And that miracle is the gift of faith that God gives you. In our fourth sermon, we saw that he takes upon himself our sicknesses that cause so much grief. And this world, it's has been subjected to decay because of Adam and Eve's sin, so we don't get too attached to it. But by his wounds and by his peace, we're healed, especially of our sin, so that when we get those grief-filled sicknesses, those sicknesses that cause so much grief, we know it's not God being angry at us and coming after us or picking on us because we're at peace with God. And in last week's sermon, we saw that since we are sheep that persist on wandering from God's flock, Jesus Christ became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we continue the series today, our text for our sermon is Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was taken away without a fair trial and without justice, and of his generation, who even cared? So he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of the rebellion of my people. This is the word of our Lord. So we continue asking the question today, why must the servant of the Lord suffer as we search through verse 8? And if we translate the Hebrew very literally, we're told, because of oppression and because of judgment was he taken. Now, the word for oppression here involves restraints, like when people subjugate other people into slavery. And the, the word for judgment there, obviously in its context, is a miscarriage of judgment. What is the purpose of government? Contrary to what anyone tells you in textbooks and that elevate government to God and everything else, the main purpose of government is to preserve life. And because you need things like roof, a roof over your head, food, you know, your possessions, it protects your possessions in order to protect your life. So something is really wrong when a government 
fails at that, when it does the opposite. Because if we were to have, for example, a foreign invader that was coming to kill us, the purpose of our military is to fend off uh, and drive away that. Or if somebody's trying to break into your house, that's the purpose of having a police force. But what happens when justice isn't served? When, for example, people are let for heinous crimes are let off with a slap on the wrist or the opposite when somebody who has committed a crime that's worthy of a slap on the wrist, but instead they throw the book at them. Well, when Jesus is arrested, he and they come with arms and spears, he says, am I leading a rebellion that you come with all of these? It really is an oppression, even the way that he is hauled in. But we have to admit, it really was also uh, an, an oppression. It was an injustice. The fact that he's arrested and brought to Annas so they could find charges so that they could murder him. The founding fathers of this nation thought things like that were, were cruel and, uh, and mean. And so they, they removed cruel and unusual punishment. That would be things like crucifixion. They gave you a right to a fair trial. They gave you a right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one is provided for you. And it's hit or miss if you're getting a good one. But we can even see in America today, lots of times, injustice when, well, for example, we call them ambulance chasing attorneys for a reason. And we use that very sarcastically and belittling of how they make their money and win their lawsuits. What's really interesting is while the Hebrew language spells both of these concepts out separately, oppression and judgment, the way it's stated in the Hebrew, we actually call it a hendeides. And so in English, we don't quite have the emphasis, but we could say it's oppressive judgment. It's complete oppressive injustice. And Christ suffered this his whole entire life in many ways. Take, for example, when the Magi stopped uh, in Jerusalem to find out where the Savior was to be born and Herod acts interested when he finds out that they slipped away and didn't tell him where the Savior's exact address was. What does Herod the awful do? He sends his soldiers to come in and kill every two-born and younger, every two-year-old and younger child in Bethlehem. That is oppressive injustice. And the fact that the Roman government, to whom he was still answerable to, let him get away with it, didn't even bother charging him with anything. The Roman government itself was also, by saying nothing, tolerating it, allowing it, permitting it, if you will. And so, as I've said, we see the cruelty in how he's arrested. We see the cruelty in how they go through a complete injustice saying we've decided to murder him. Now let's find the charges so that we can legally do this and not ourselves get, under, get into trouble. And what happens when he's brought before Pilate? Pilate should have recognized, as he did, this is an innocent man, so he should have stood up, but he was afraid of the crowds. An oppressive judgment, an oppressive justice takes place. Even as Jesus beat, and did those Roman guards have to have so much fun and torment him while they're doing it? No, nope. there's that oppressive justice. Now, we're told and asked to his generation who we could add the word regret by the context regretfully considers that he's been cut off from the land of the living. In spite of all this injustice, Jesus even appears to Herod's son who uh, could have let him go as well, but didn't. In spite of all of this oppressive justice, who cared? The Romans should have deposed Pilate. Pilate should have gathered up his legions and done something with the Sanhedrin. No one cared. 
The disciples had to say, and they, they, were, they were outstanding believers after the fact, but in a moment of weakness, they run in fear. So that one, just one, the one who in English we'd say it was Jesus's best friend, John, cares enough to stand at the foot of the cross along with Jesus's mother and a handful of other women. It was an injustice and nothing was ever done about it. But as we learned in our first sermon, This was all part of Jesus' plan. This was all part of his wisdom to bring you to salvation. We theologians make a distinction between God's antecedent and consequent will. His antecedent will would be that God determines that something must and has to happen. And he makes sure it happens. For example, to predestine someone to be saved. This person will be saved. Consequent will would be, for example, what happened with Judas, where God knows all things. He knew that Judas would reject his grace. He knew that the devil would find a willing participant. So he decided to use Judas's injustice as the means through which he would prepare himself for the cross. So we always have to remember, while it is a miscarriage of justice, Jesus allowed this to happen so that he could save you. And one of the reasons why he goes to the cross is to even atone for the sins of oppression and of justice and oppressive justice. In fact, he even uses the institution that should not be oppressing justice uh, as one of the means through which he ends up on the cross, the Roman government. Government is supposed to protect life and preserve property in order to protect that life. So as we ask the question, why must the servant of the Lord suffer? We see because of oppression of justice, he goes to the cross to pay for that. And Isaiah makes that all the clear when he says in the last third of verse eight, because of the rebellion of my people, a strike is his. Maybe in English, we would say a blow comes upon him. Once again, Isaiah goes right back. Who's Isaiah's people when he says my people? That's Israel. Now, we're not saying this uh, picking on a particular people because they were supposed to be believers. And we can apply that just as much to you and I today as members of the bride of Christ, the invisible church. We can say, why was why did Christ have to suffer? Because of your and my sins, A, a blow comes upon him. And once again, Isaiah uses that word for sin that is rebellion. Time and time again, we are reminded that the first table of the law deals with our relationship with God. But even sins against the second table of the law, they're rebelling against God. If I steal just two pennies from my neighbor, I'm rebelling against God saying, God, you have not provided enough for me. If I badmouth my neighbor's good reputation, I say, Lord, you have been too good for my neighbor and I need to give my oppressive justice on them by gossiping about them and ruining their reputation. Every time we sin, even as believers, every time we sin, we're rebelling against God. And so it's the Sanhedrin were the people who were supposed to be believers They even knew, as you look at Nicodemus' words to Jesus in John chapter 3, they knew Jesus was from God. When Jesus raises Lazarus, that's when Caiaphas says, oh, we got to kill this guy. They knew he was from God, but they rebel against it to preserve their own reputations. But he also has to go to the cross for you and for I to atone for your and my rebellions. Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? Because of the sin of oppression of justice, 
When he returns, when we're given the new heavens and the new earth, we will not need government because our lives will not uh, be in danger, nor will we have to worry about property being stolen. And we also will no longer rebel against God because our sinful nature will be ripped away. But in the meantime, as Isaiah spells out in verse 8, there's really two sins involved here. And both those sins are reasons why he suffers the cross so he can wash them away. The oppression of justice and because of your and my rebellion. So Jesus was arrested and brought to court through oppression. But God used this to put our sins upon Christ. As he saw it was going to happen, he planned to use it for you and me so Christ would be put on that New Testament altar to atone for our sins. Amen. We conclude our sermon with verse 4 of hymn 127, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrificed to cancel guilt, None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Amen.